everyone. I'm Harpreet Singh, welcoming you to the Future of Work Pioneers podcast. Today, we are joined by Skylar Moore, who works for the Defense Innovation Board as the Director of Science and Technology. She also serves on the Board of Directors for Young Professionals in Foreign Policy and provides expertise to a number of projects and panels on topics related to technology and national security. For the purposes of these interview today, Skylar only speaks for herself. She does not speak on behalf of the Department of Defense or the Defense Innovation Board. Skylar, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much, Harpreet. I'm very happy to be here. So let's begin with your background, your journey so far. Any defining moments that have brought you to your current position and your current role? Sure. So I sit at this interesting place where, as you noted, I'm right at the intersection of technology and national security. And I think that there have been a number of moments that have shaped both of those paths. So on the national security side, which has always been kind of the primary driver for me, I think I found my passion for that and was determined to follow, um, follow that career path in particular after I worked at a school in Afghanistan about almost a decade ago. And frankly, it opened my eyes to a whole different world that I simply could not have imagined previously. I was previously interested in foreign policy from an academic sense because I'd read a lot about the country and I'd read a lot about um, national security more generally. But being on the ground and having those conversations with the young women at the school I was teaching at, having conversations with stakeholders who were trying to implement policies that would improve national security on the ground really showed me how important it was to have that foundation of stability before you could accomplish anything else in the country. You know, I was very passionate and continue to be very passionate about women's education in that country, but it was very difficult to make any sort of forward progress unless, um, you know, in the situation where these girls couldn't work, walk to school safely, maybe would have to relocate every now and again. And it was just very difficult circumstances that required a foundation of stability to actually improve. Tell us about the school. Uh, it, it was in Kabul, correct? It was, yes. Yeah, it's an incredible. So they, since I was there, it's rapidly expanded and has now become the first all-women's boarding school in Afghanistan, which is just absolutely incredible. It blows my mind what they've accomplished. But it, at the time when I was there, it was a small operation with maybe 20 to 30 girls. And uh, it's called the School of Leadership Afghanistan, S-O-L-A, or SOLA. And I strongly recommend that people check it out because it is absolutely critical what they're doing. They are seeking to educate women in Afghanistan, but they are also instilling values in these girls that will encourage them to return to Afghanistan when frequently they go out of country for university or, or other education and then come back rather than contributing to the brain drain in the country and make sure that they are working every day in their country to improve their situation. And what what is the... For, uh, the, uh, the grade level? Uh, is it uh, se uh, secondary schooling or uh, higher education? More of secondary schooling to, yeah, higher to uh, high school. And then for university and college, you know, we'll help them apply to places in Afghanistan, in other countries, including the United States. There are a number of students who are currently in the United States, any of those. And how did you happen to come across this opportunity? I, I know you, you were an undergrad at Harvard College. Uh, uh, so was this a Harvard uh, internship or was this something else? It was not. Uh, it wasn't actually formally organized by anyone, uh, which gave my parents a lot of anxiety, as you can imagine. I really, it was just something that I latched onto and I just couldn't let go of. So I 
the year previous, prior to my going to Afghanistan, um, I took a year off to work. I had injured myself doing the sports that I was at Harvard doing, and then I uh, was able to work at a variety of really interesting places where my mentors, for the most part, had experience working in Afghanistan. It was just this odd kind of serendipitous event where I started reading very heavily about the country. I became very interested and just continued to read and educate myself until I hit a point where I thought, this is not sufficient. I can read and read about this as much as I want, but there will always be this pocket of information that's missing if I don't actually go there and retrieve it myself. And if I don't actually hear from people who live there and experience that every day. And so for me, it, it, was, um, it was just a necessity. There was no other way to complete my understanding and not to say that I completed it if I have any extent, there is certainly a lot more to be learned there, but it was a critical piece of my ability to contribute in the field of national security to better understand the country to go physically myself. And, and can you give us a sense of uh, what, the curriculum looks like at a place like that? Sure. So they, frankly, much of it is a traditional curriculum where you have English, history, science, etc. Um, I taught history lessons. And then eventually, uh, I began teaching uh, self-defense lessons because I discovered, so I have a background in self-defense. I have a black belt in Wushu. And I realized that the girls really could benefit from that because they were living in an environment that was very unsafe. And so eventually I transitioned much more to that side of teaching. But beyond that, I mean, it was very much like any school in the United States. They tended to focus more, of course, on the leadership side of things and trying to make sure that any class had that perspective or that purview on it to make sure that the girls were focused on that. But other than that, it was very traditional. Mm -hmm. so, so let's uh, talk about the Defense Innovation Board and its mission. Happy to. Yep, so I currently work at the Defense Innovation Board. Uh, as you stated at the beginning, I'll probably just repeat this a few times, I speak for myself, I don't speak for the Defense Innovation Board or the Department of Defense. But um, the organization is an independent advisory board that provides recommendations to the Secretary of Defense and the Undersecretary for Research and Engineering. And the intent of the organization is to find those innovative best practices that exist outside of DOD, whether they be in technology, workforce, or organizational structure, and bring in those practices where they are applicable to DOD. And I do put a heavy emphasis on where they are applicable to DOD, because of course, there are cases where um, that isn't actually true. And so that's the main priority of our organization. We try to maintain some distance, both from our private sector ties and from DOD, to make sure that we are being objective in what we're putting forward as recommendations. But we uh, we really enjoy our work and we do our best to support the department. And and so you said it, it, it acts independently. So is this entity part of the DOD or does it sit somewhere else? Yep. So it is technically part of the DOD. It is underneath the Undersecretariat for Research and Engineering in DOD. There are a number of uh, federal advisory committees that exist both across DOD and all of federal government. So again, we're technically underneath the organization that we serve. Um, we just, in terms of the ways that we interact with the organization, we try to maintain some distance for objectivity. So on, on the show, we've been exploring the theme of innovation across DOD uh, over the past couple of uh, months. So how, how does uh, the Defense Innovation Board function within the larger ecosystem when it comes to innovation? So in a, there are a couple of ways that we interface. So one is as 
a ground truth provider of information about what those best practices are from outside of DOD. So in a weird way, similar to the reasons that I went directly to Afghanistan to collect information about it, similarly, we have gone directly to private sector academia and research to have those experts who now sit on our board be able to tell us the ground truth of what best practices are on the outside. Um, so that's kind of one main function. The next is that when we provide those recommendations, uh, we can serve as an honest broker of sorts in the building because we both have our expertise from our board, but then we also maintain really close connections with the innovation community and DOD so that we can find the right people who either own the challenge area or area of opportunity that we are ide have identified and can act on it because we as the board cannot implement any of the recommendations that we put forward ourselves. However, we can serve as the bridge for all of the different people in DOD who might own parts of the problem and need to work together to fix it. Um, and then the last piece of what we can do is serve as a platform for DOD in general. You know, we have some, some fairly high profile folks on our board who are able to elevate both the challenges and successes of DOD. And we do try to do both where either there is a warfighter that is facing an intractable problem that they need support on, or someone's doing fantastic work and the rest of the department should take note and learn the lessons from that. Those are the three areas I think we can help best. Mm -hmm. And uh, can, can you describe um, uh, your, your day-to-day -day, uh, role and what, what are you engaged in personally and uh, maybe give us some examples of the kind of work that is going on? Absolutely. So uh, in terms of the day-to-day, -day, I think, uh, you know, in terms of percentages, there is about 5% that really goes towards just pure analysis and research. Because ultimately, you know, we've discovered there is a specific challenge and we want to unpack it and create a framework for it that, so that we can attack it in an organized way. And uh, that is, you know, an important piece, but a small piece of the rest of what we do. Because I think that admiring the problem is uh, a skill that many in DC have. <laughs> we have a lot of people who, who like doing that, but the important part is, and so what? What are you going to do about it? And that is the rest of the 95 to us. So the 95 is finding what the current state of play is right now in the department, understanding who the key stakeholders are, understanding who the leadership is all the way up the chain of command of those stakeholders, because, you know, you can get the people at the, at the, who are right in, you know, in touch with the problem agreed that we need to do something, but they have to answer to others. And we completely understand and respect that and need to get that entire chain in line as well. And then the next piece is, you know, are you going to need funding? Do you, are there other people or other parties that you need to get involved or need to get um, kind of their sign off on this? And that whole kind of soft, squishy area of the problem is where we thrive because uh, we try to provide recommendations that are specific and actionable to the point where we can really hand it over to someone and say, you just follow this playbook and we will talk to anybody you need up your command chain to make sure that they understand why this is important and we will support you to the help. This episode is brought to you by Experfy. Incubated in Harvard Innovation Lab, Experfy provides custom future of work solutions such as private talent clouds and skill taxonomies. Experfy differentiates itself by using subject matter experts to pre-vet and pipeline candidates for AI and high-end technology skills. However, Experfy Talent Cloud Platform is skill agnostic, 
and can be licensed to build custom talent clouds for any and all skills. In a different use case, enterprises interested in employee intermobility can license the ExperPi platform to create an internal gigs marketplace where interested employees can be algorithmically matched to projects, gamifying their learning experience. Visit www.expertify.com for more information. Give us a sense of one or two things that you've been excited about to implement. Absolutely. Uh, you know, the one project that I've worked on at the Defense Innovation Board that I think will always be my favorite is our work that we did with the Joint Pathology Center, the JPC. Uh, a lot of people don't know this, but the Department of Defense owns the largest repository of disease and cancer-related data in the world, full stop, which is insane to say out loud because it's not something that you would associate with the department, but the department has this responsibility to take very good care of its servicemen and women, and so they keep meticulous records over the years of their disease and cancer-related symptoms and everything else, and so we've built up this incredible repository over hundreds of years um, that is currently in physical format. So it's in tissue slides. And we recognize that, look, this creates a huge opportunity for advancement in this field because you're sitting on this treasure trove of data. I mean, think about what you could do if you were to apply machine learning algorithms to it, if you were to disperse it to the research community. There are so many ways that people could benefit, but it was impossible to do because it was in physical format. So we had to help them transition it from that physical form to a digital form that was secure, making sure that we're taking care of our service members' healthcare data, but also accessible enough and could be leveraged and manipulated in a way where if you're running machine algor learning algorithms through these millions and millions of slides, you can suddenly find solutions to diseases, thousands of diseases and cancers that exist in this repository. So for me, that was one of the most exciting and rewarding projects that I ever worked on because the mission alone is, it's not just helping, you know, healthcare for the warfighter and healthcare for DOD, but there are global implications of what this would do. All of us are implicate, are, are kind of invested in, in what is held in that repository. And to me, that was one of the most worthwhile projects that I've worked on. So, so uh, the, this project was largely digitizing this data or did you go beyond that? So the first stage is really digitizing it. And mm -hmm. so getting those into a format that you could use. And frankly, that is just the bulk of the work because it's that early prep work of, do you have the right infrastructure? Once it's converted, is it in a format that's usable for people? Are you cleaning the data in a way where it is actually, again, usable if you're applying AI and ML algorithms against it? And so a ton of the work was on that side, but once that's completed, I think there is just like this stunning and incredible aperture of opportunity on the side of machine learning and AI being applied to it. Mm -hmm. and, and do you envision sharing this data with the folks outside the DOD? So I think it's going gonna, it's gonna to depend on the circumstance, right? So there's some data that is less sensitive than others. So, you know, some of the service members that are still alive and in the force have their healthcare data that's in there. That's something that's very sensitive and we need to make sure that we're taking all the right precautions. There are ways to de-identify data, but again, we would just want to make absolutely certain that there was no risk of either an individual service member being compromised or an aggregate, something about our force being compromised. Um, for you know, pieces of data about service members from 100 years back, maybe it's a little less sensitive, um, but again, you always have to be thinking about that aggregate risk uh, when compiled with so much information. So I think that's something that we're going to need to be constantly iterating on and understanding as we release data. 
So let's uh, talk about future of work. What, what, how do you think about future of work in the context of the work you're doing? So in the context, so we do a lot of work focused on what we call workforce behavior and culture. Those are kind of the three main pieces of it. And it's such a challenge in the department because it is simply such a large organization. You know, relative to companies, we're a three million person organization. Like everyone take a collective breath in for whoever's in HR and something else in a, in a company. I mean, it's just the scale is really hard to comprehend. And to that extent, you know, it is some it requires a balance of grassroots and top-down support and organization to get that workforce behavior and culture piece right. And the challenge is that for such a large organization, frequently you just create intensive structures to ensure organization because it's enormous. Um, however, those can sometimes limit creativity, innovation, everything else that my organization holds dear and is trying to push forward. And so we are trying to work with the department to help them understand how you can both manage a massive organization, but also allow that creativity and innovation to flow from all quarters, whether it's from the warfighter out in the field or whether it's leadership in the Pentagon, any of those folks should be able and can and should push forward those ideas in a safe environment that allows good ideas to flow to the top. So, so how uh, do you think about the impact of AI uh, that's going to ha have on the workforce specifically? And is that something that has been tackled? Uh... Yeah, so I think that there are a couple of ways of attacking that question. I think that one is, you know, the impact uh, at a very early level is going to be education and training. And it is going to require a substantive and dedicated approach to educating and training, not just people who are specifically working with AI-enabled systems, but the broader workforce. People working in policy are going to need to understand this if they are going to make productive policy that's going to support the people who are then using them. Um, but then ultimately, like longer, longer down the road, I think that there is often um, a concern about AI that is voiced in across multiple uh, fronts about the risk of removing jobs or making people irrelevant or you know, any of those concerns, which I think are completely reasonable. And I, I understand why people feel that way. I think that there is another way of thinking about it where it will, you know, it will lift the burden of certain tasks off of everyone's plate. And it will open up your, that piece of your plate to devote to any number of creative options and activities. And that's what makes me really excited about it because it's about, you know, for the most part, AI systems are gonna help you with that kind of dirty, dull, kind of repetitive task, whether it's back office, anything else, and lift that all off your brain so that you can actually dedicate yourself to that broader creative energy that makes humans so unique. And absolutely, there is the goal that, you know, AI-enabled systems will ultimately be able to fill more of that creative role, but that's a really difficult problem to wrestle with that many folks in the AI technology field are, are not quite, you know, are still wrapping their hands around. And so for the most part, humans, that responsibility falls on us. And so to the extent that we have more time to do that, that is fantastic news in my view. Yeah. And, and you know, the, the idea that the repetitive tasks are being automated and uh, they're being taken off our plate uh, gives rise to this uh, you know, question that do we have the skills that are necessary to be creative? Uh, you know, do we have those essential skills that will be necessary 
to to do the problem solving that we need to do right these kind of skills come from very different kind of uh, training right the study of humanities uh, liberal arts uh, th- things that we generally don't think about right so when we think of ai Absolutely. is actually something else we need to prepare for uh, and and uh, the tools are somewhere else Yes, absolutely. And I, I love the direction that you're taking that because I think that to me, the future of the workforce is interdisciplinary at its core. And the reason for that is exactly what you're describing about that baseline skill set that you need to have of cultivating creativity comes from being invested in a lot of different fields. And I don't mean that you do electrical engineering and chemical engineering. I mean, you do like electrical engineering and the arts and you sculpt on the side. And it sounds silly for me to say it out loud, but I really genuinely believe that it requires investment across multiple different fields to spark ideas that you simply cannot have if you stay in a very narrow lane. And so that is what will prepare you best for a future world where part of your plate has been cleared by AI enabled systems. And you need to have this exquisite capability to be creative. And, you know, it doesn't mean that you have to be an expert in machine learning. It means that you need to be more creative. I'm going to ask my colleague, Adam Wood, to join the conversation. Hey, hey Scott, Adam. how are you? Doing well, how are you? Fantastic. Um, so you, you just touched on um, basically what uh, we, would, we would differentiate as cognitive routinized skills versus cognitive non-routinized skills to augment the workforce, right? Um, and uh, I love where you were going with that. So uh, just a bit of a transition. Is there anything, you know, what are some of the things that, that the DOD is doing or could be doing right now to help with that transition, you know, building or advancing an agile workforce? So can, I, can you talk to me a little bit more about what you mean by agile workforce? Yeah. So, for example, we were talking about uh, talking about the skills that are necessary, uh, multidisciplinary and the, the interplay, you know, say, between uh, engineering and uh, understanding what the economics behind that would be um, or, you know, what the policy and legal implications could be relative to the economics and then, you know, actually standing something up. Um, what is the DOD doing or what could they be doing? to advance those types of, of workforce initiatives and integrate that uh, agility into the process to you know, create that robust quality education training, uh, things like that? Sure, yeah, it's a good question. So I think that um, what DOD is already doing is recognizing those gaps in capability and creating the opportunities for civilian and military workforce to take advantage of that training on a regular basis. I think that I have seen pockets of what I'm about to describe, but they could also improve in ensuring that that training is uh, being thoughtfully applied to a broader organization and not simply an individual. So I can give you a specific example of where, you know, that disconnect might create a challenge. Design thinking, a kind of process of thing, you know, it's something that we train a lot of folks in DOD in. And I think it is incredibly valuable and can have incredible returns on the back end when applied. However, if one person in an office has been trained in design thinking and nobody else has, and that person is not in a position of leadership or in a position to be able to spread that knowledge, 
suddenly you've trained someone and they have no way of applying it in their in their day to day work. And so either, you know, they will not use it at all. Best case, they'll keep that knowledge, but not use it. And worst case is they'll forget that knowledge and not use it. So to me, a really important uh, piece of training is not thinking in it about it in a silo or in, in kind of a, a tunnel vision view, but thinking about it in the context of the broader organization that the person receiving training is about to go back to. Yeah, absolutely. I think that uh, there's an element between um, when you're discussing training, uh, whether that's in the classroom, asynchronous, what have you, there's an experiential element to it that uh, is, is required so that it can become applicable and so that that individual can also share, uh, you know, that's basic knowledge share. Um, uh, have you seen any, uh, anything in the private sector that could help translate agility into, uh, into the DOD's workforce? Um, any unique concepts that you've seen that you're excited about? I mean, yes. It's almost the entirety of our work on the Defense Innovation Board uh, to find those pockets of successful practices um, outside of DOD and bring them in. Frankly, in a lot of areas, DOD could stand to learn from private sector uh, methods, I, I would certainly say. I think that um, what DOD does need to do is take advantage of opportunities that come up for them to close that gap. So an example I would give is frankly COVID, where most of us are in a remote space. And this is a report that the Defense Innovation Board put forward a couple of months ago as we were seeing COVID ramp up. But we realized that there is a huge opportunity for DOD to kind of take a different approach to recruitment and retention and be able to recruit so many folks who are on the tech side that perhaps we wouldn't have otherwise been able to reach by embracing remote work. And we're learning right now that, you know, previously DOD thought we couldn't possibly do remote work. There are so many reasons that we couldn't do it. We don't have the tech, we have classified issues, we have all sorts of issues. And we're discovering now that by virtue of the fact that we have to, there are ways around that. And so by accepting that, you open up this world where maybe we can recruit from a much broader geographic field. You can work on the West Coast, stay in, stay in whatever city you want, stay close to your family, live wherever you want and you can still work for us and serve your country. Um, and that to us is a huge benefit because previously, I don't know if we can necessarily compete on the side of, you know, when you come into the office, there will be a foosball and a foosball table and, uh, you know, lots of LaCroix in the fridge. Um, but what we can offer is a really important mission and we can offer really incredibly interesting and difficult work for you to wrap your hands around. And if we can at least level the playing field in other respects, uh, with the private sector, I think we have a really good shot of making progress in that area. I completely agree with you. I think the purpose-driven purpose, uh, mission is, is something that uh, not only the department, but I think the federal government writ large really um, <clears throat> is something that they do well. And the people that it attracts, you know, have those shared values. Um, and, and that's what drives that innovation forward as well. So Skylar, um, you, you've talked about the impact of COVID and COVID accelerating digital transformation when it comes to remote work. What, what are other ways in which COVID has impacted uh, the DOD in, from your perspective? I mean, I think a lot of it is really just from a 
a technology implementation standpoint. I think that there was always a time where we are looking out and, and seeing all of the beautiful technology that is a decade ahead of where we are and thinking, oh my gosh, we, we can and should be implementing it, but it required a hard shove and COVID provided that hard shove, both in terms of we need to have better compute available for the entire workforce. We need to have the tools so that the workforce can talk to one another regardless of where they are and what time it is. Um, and it's just, it really is just these basic, simple IT issues that can ultimately strangle a workforce if they're not resolved. And I think that COVID has, has you know, unex unintended side consequence, uh, certainly not a positive thing in any other respect, but in that, in that respect, it actually has created um, a positive shove for the department. Are, are you... Uh, trying to bring together various stakeholders from the private sector, academia, to, to do some of the work you've been doing from an innovation standpoint? So when we interact with commercial sector, private sector, it's usually in the context of collecting information about what they are doing. And then we will kind of, we, we will typically keep them somewhat separate, again, for the sake of being independent, for the sake of objectivity, where we collect information from the private sector and we collect information about the current state from DOD. And then we kind of sit collectively and our board does have a pretty, a wealth of information about both so that they can make those connections where um, they're appropriate or not. Um, an example of that is that we're, among other projects, we're looking at AI test and evaluation and what best practices exist around there to ensure that you fully understand risk and performance metrics for both of those. And, um, you know, we've had conversations with commercial sector, we've had conversations with DOD. I think a lot of people are thinking about this, but not necessarily talking to one another about it. And we discovered that, frankly, both DOD and commercial sector do not have, you know, some sort of exquisite best practice that's applicable to any AI-enabled system or application that can be shared with one another. Everyone is really struggling with the same problems, And so to us, that means we continue to have those conversations with commercial sector because we believe that they do play a critical role in feeding best practices to the department. But also it means that DOD needs to really buckle down and decide, okay, there's no, you know, the private sector cavalry is not coming to save anything. We need to also invest in this ourselves and we need to work on this ourselves. Any, any parting words for our audience? Um, parting words, I mean, thank you so much for having me on. I really do appreciate it. Um, I, my parting words would be focused on the, you know, the title of your podcast, Future of Work. I think that workforce challenges are something that are fundamental, and I think folks understand that, but easily uh, pushed to the side. I think it's hard to measure progress on workforce issues, to quantify them and show to, you know, whoever you're presenting to, look, we made progress on culture. Our culture is X units better. Um, and so for that reason, sometimes people just give up and let it fall to the side or say, you know what, for another day, for another day, for another day. Uh, and particularly in an environment like COVID where, you know, you are stretching the limits of a team and their ability to connect with one another and to an organization, it is critical to focus on your workforce, both in terms of giving them the resources they need giving them the organizational structure they need while allowing them to be creative and innovative on their own and just ensuring that that is a priority for your organization because if you let it sit too long, it will strangle your mission. Thank you, Skylar, for your time today. Thank you so much, Harpreet. Really appreciate it.